If you'll open in your Bibles with me to Psalm 74. Psalms chapter 74. We're going to read this whole psalm together and you'll notice immediately it's a psalm that is written in a minor key. Psalm 74. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The the enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees. And all of its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them, and they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We don't see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, and there's none among us who knows how long. How long, O God? Was the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? Yet God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. And you have established the heavenly lights and the suns. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts and not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you've given it to us, and we pray that as we consider it tonight, that you would help us to find... The truth that is here and that we would have hearts where your truth is at home. Let it resonate within us in the parts of our hearts that are sad and afraid and confused, particularly the parts of us that don't understand what's going on. And Lord, I pray that as an outcome of this, we would have a passion and a zeal for your glory that is bigger and more important than any of the circumstances we face. Please help us tonight. We are weak, we are needy, 
we are dusty. And so we cry out to you for help. We ask this in your name. Amen. Americans are really comfortable with complaining. Have you noticed this? You could say uh, it's rooted in our heritage. 1630s, Puritans came to America because they were complaining about the lack of religious freedom that they had in England. The American Revolution and its many storied events, including the Boston Tea Party, were in a sense because we were complaining about unfair government and taxation without representation. The Civil Rights Movement, women's suffrage, many, many other civil issues gained momentum from complaints, corporate complaints, about injustice, real and perceived. I found it interesting to learn that in his speech on American consumer rights, JFK actually said that Americans, that consumers have the right to be heard. And I was reading what that meant, and it literally means the right to complain. We have the right to complain about products and raise concerns that we have about things we buy or services. And boy, have we taken that to heart. But most of our complaining is not as productive as the American Revolution, right? Last night, my family, we don't do this often, but we went to the Texas Roadhouse for, for dinner. And you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but restaurants are are places for professional complainers. Like, have you noticed this? People go to restaurants and they become Scrooge. I mean, just instantly. My son is one of them, right? (laughs) This two-year-old was given a bucket the size of his head full of peanuts that he could smash, throw, you know, dump on the floor. Well, you know, he was on my side of the table, so dump on the floor, right? He was given four buttered, buttered rolls. I mean, they took those rolls and they submerged them in a pot of butter for at least 20 minutes, pulled them out, and he put that thing in his mouth in two bites. It was incredible. He was given four different colors of crayons and an activity worksheet to, uh, to, to keep him entertained. And not only that, there was a professional balloon tire. It, what, I don't know what that's called, but it's a thing. The guy's been doing it for 25 years. Who spent 20 minutes tying these elaborate balloons for my children, right? And so for me, I had an amazing day. I had an 11-ounce steak. <laughs> Do you know how much 11 ounces is? It's perfect, right? 11-ounce steak. But my son Roman, the moment he finished that roll, he was frustrated that he did not have another roll. The moment that the peanut thing was on the other side of the table, he was frustrated he didn't have the peanut thing. The guy tied him a a race car that he spent seven minutes tying him a race car. And the moment Roman had a race car and and he was tying Elsa for Addy, Roman wanted another balloon creation, right? He was frustrated that he didn't have another balloon creation. He had his crayons. He wanted Karis's crayons, right? I'm, I, we were walking out, and uh, and I was just I was just like in steak coma. I was, I'm still I'm still happy about that steak. <laughs> and we were standing there, and we were trying to like wrangle the kids out the door. And a guy walked by me, and you know the hostess said, "You know, thanks for coming." He's Rrr. he he apparently didn't have the same experience I had, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe he maybe he had a I don't know. Um, I think it's safe to say that there's a good complaining, right? American Revolution. And then there's like Roman complaining, right? There's or that cranky guy. Good complaining and bad complaining. We complain about wrongs and injustices. 
Or we can complain about how to satisfy our insatiable appetites. Well, the psalm that we have in front of us tonight, Psalm 74, is a psalm that contains a lot of complaining, I would say. And it's really an example of how God's people can voice our complaints to God in a way that honors him. If you were here last week, you know that we've embarked on a short little series about Christian lament. And we're trying to answer the question, and how is it that Christians cry? Maybe you're not a crier. That's fine. If you'd had the steak that I had last night, you would find passion in your heart that you did not. <clears throat> you, you may not cry, but, but, but think of sorrow. Think of, think of the sorrows that you face in your life. The big catastrophic ones, of course. But this, the normal weekday kind of sorrows that aren't worth really telling anybody about. What do we do with that? How is it that Christians can be sad and talk to, to God about it? Last week we saw that we live in a world that is both incredibly glorious, but it's also returning to dust. And so loss is our everyday experience. Every single good thing that you have and every good thing that God has made is turning to dust. So loss is a major part of our life. It's the effect of sin and the fall. And of course, God is making all things new and he's working, he's fixing that. But what do we do now? And we have said that rather than ignoring loss or pretending that it doesn't hurt or numbing ourselves, we can see a pattern in the Bible where God invites his people to direct their griefs, their sorrows, their frustrations even to him. We can talk to him. We, his people, can make lament. Now, we've seen that lament is really more of a pattern in the Bible. It, it, the word literally means a howl or a cry because of, of grief. But we saw last week, specifically, that Christian lament is a pattern of prayer that begins in pain, but it ends in trust. It begins in pain, but it's a journey from pain and honest expression into confidence in God. It's where we honestly, and that's, we'll talk about that tonight, but we honestly voice our pains and our concerns, our fears and our doubts to God because we know that he's sovereign and we know that he's redeeming the world. That's why our complaints are not useless. Because we're complaining to the one that we know is fixing it, and he has power, and he rules. Even though lament is a real expression of grief, and it can be very dark for the Christian, it's not hopeless. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will never experience true hopelessness. It's not possible, because God has made you new. Lament, by its very nature, since it's expressed to God, is naturally hopeful, right? Because you're expressing it to God. And so we've said that lament is really a journey. That's a really critical thing to understand. And when I say journey, I mean it is a, it is a journey of the heart away from a, a pain that is having a hard time seeing God towards God and it ends in faith. Still, still hurts. Lament is not pixie dust, right? But it ends in faith. 
We discussed last week four elements of lament that are heavily influenced by uh, the book that I was referring by Mark Vorgop. And, and I'll, I'll just remind you of these because we're going to focus on one of them tonight. But, but there's really four movements in lament. First of all, you pray. You turn to God in prayer. And that is so hard, isn't it, when you're hurting? The second thing is that you, oh, I've said you pour out your hearts or you complain. You complain. You pour your heart out to the Lord. The third thing you do is you ask, God, change this, heal him, move this, provide this, give me clarity, change the circumstance. But you don't end in any of those places. You end in the fourth place, which is trusting in God. You trust in God. So you pray, complain, request, and trust. And tonight, as we look at Psalm 74, I think all four of those elements are in this psalm, but we're going to focus our attention on the complaining portion, because I think we struggle to think, of, think about that. We'll ask, why should we complain? How should we complain? And when should we complain? Very creative, I am. Yeah. And we'll see that in Psalms, we'll see all this in Psalm 74, but let me give, we're not going to go line by line through the Psalm, but let me just give you a brief explanation of what's going on here, a high level. Um, it seems like this Psalm, I mean, this Psalm is written after the Babylonian destruction, when the temple was destroyed and the choice citizens of Jerusalem were taken away into exile and uh, in, in, in the deportation. All right, this, think, think in terms of, of Daniel. It was a time for God's people where it really seemed like evil was going unchecked. Prophecy had ceased. We heard, we heard lament about that. And God's promises seemed to be forgotten. That is such a critical piece of this. God's promises seem to have been forgotten by God. Were they? D- tell me, no. But they seemed to be. The psalm is, it ends on a a sour note. It it doesn't really resolve, right? Um, The problem, the the, the circumstance uh, is not fixed. The movement, think about it, this is very different than what we saw last week in Psalm 77, which is really clean and neat and tidy, which is why I started there, right? It begins in pain and it walks through all these steps and it ends with, okay, well, God is great. Look what he did in Egypt. Okay, right? I'm okay. This psalm doesn't do that, right? It's, it's a little bit messier. Um, the psalmist cries out to God. He voices his complaints. Um, and, and he ends with confidence in God in, in 77. But in 74, it begins in grief and complaining in verses 1 through 11. And then we see the faith movement in 12 through 17, Right? But then back in 18 through 23, the psalmist circles back around to some of the complaining and the requesting. And when it ends, it's not resolved. Notice the very last verse here. What is this, 23? Um, it, It really ends with the enemies of God's people clamoring, roaring, and mocking. I don't know about you, but I feel like most of my prayers kind of end like that. Right? Like, when is the time that you prayed, and by the time you got done praying, your problem was fixed? Like, I don't know if I've ever had that happen, really. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it has. I just, that's just, you know, my experience is more like this, right? Um, and it's important for us to note this pattern for a couple of reasons. First of all, like pain, lament is not 
tidy, right? It's not these neat little categories and you kind of like walk yourself through the stages and when you're done, you get a sticker and you feel better, right? That's not necessarily, that's not necessarily how it works. It's messy. Your heart, your broken heart may swell with faith one day and the next day be consumed with doubt. Isn't that frustrating? Right? You feel like you've turned the corner in your heart or your attitude and then the next day is worse than like three weeks ago. The journey from pain to faith is very rarely a straight line. We don't always progress through the stages of lament or grief or, or, or any stage we can identify in a logical order. But we should always end in faith. The second thing I want you to notice is the unresolved nature of the psalm, I think is a good reminder for us that lament is not magic, right? I'm not offering, we're not offering some technique uh, to fix your problems or to squeeze explanations out of God. Like if you're like, all right, God, I did the four steps. Pastor Nathan told me about that he learned from somebody else, right? Hey, you know, why isn't this, why isn't this fixed? That's just not how it works. That's not the point. The point isn't even really about the circumstances. The point isn't even really about the pain. The point is your relationship with God. The point is to move from the pain to trust. And if you think about what it means to trust, it usually means you don't have all the explanations. Otherwise, not really trusting, are you? Right? You're seeing. We don't necessarily get all our questions answered even if we ask them, and our problems aren't solved, sometimes they get worse. But here's the thing. If you progress from pain to faith, your problems may get worse, but guess what? If you get God, you get everything. If you get God, if you get more God, that is enough. And so let's, let's ask first, why should we complain? Well, and I've got lots of caveats, you know me, right? We should complain because the psalmist complains, right? This is a corporate psalm of lament. Think about that. It is an invitation. The, the, the psalmist is inviting other people to complain with him. We could talk about this a lot. That's a very interesting thing to do. It would be very interesting to discuss how a church like Trinity could do something like this, Right? We, there, have there not been times where we want to come together and just groan over loss in our church family, over the state of our nation, over the lostness of the world? But it begins in verse 1. Look at this request. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Pasture. Though it's... Uh, Voice is a question. It's pretty easy to understand. This is a complaint, right? Do you see that? God, you've cast us off. That's the complaint. God, it seems like you've abandoned us. God, you're angry and I don't understand. All these complaints are, they're all throughout the psalm. Especially in these first 11 verses. Again, in verse 3, the enemy has destroyed everything. And that destruction is detailed in verses 4 through 8, right? The details are important. He's meditating. He's actually thinking in his prayer and describing what is so bad and so hard about his life. 
And then he goes on, he tells God about it. He goes on in verse 9 and he, he complains, what's even worse than all this that's happening is that your prophets are silent. Not only is my life hard, but God isn't speaking to me. I can't hear him. In verses 10 and 11, he complains he doesn't understand. How long? Why? Why aren't you acting? Why don't you do something? Don't you love me? The psalmist is complaining and he's inviting others to join him in this. Which brings us to what I think is really a very, a very central idea behind this idea of godly complaining. And that's this. If you are going to experience... The true mercy of lament, you have to learn how to complain. If you're going to experience the true mercy of what it means to lament, you need to learn how to complain. Now, I know that complaining seems bad, and you know, often it is. It can be. There is absolutely, okay, hear me, there is absolutely a way to sinfully complain to God. We'll talk about that later. But I think we should note first that the psalmists, the psalms include so much blunt, honest, graphic, creative complaining that we can't overlook this. All right? This is not permission to sin. This is not permission to rise up above God and speak down on him as if he needs to be instructed by you. That is not what we're talking about. But what I do think it is, is it is a chance for us humans who are still in a world that is broken, among a world of loss, it is a chance for us to wrestle with the character and the promises of God. This is an invitation for you to rest, to get it under your fingers, to get his truths under your fingers so that you can make them your own. Last week we talked about the fact that everything's going to dust. But we also live in a world where God has revealed himself to us, his character. And that's precious. And in a fallen world, it can seem like that the suffering that we face and the things that happen to us, it seems like that they're inconsistent with the character of God, doesn't it? Isn't that true? It can seem like that what's going on in your life does not fit with all these incredible things the Bible says about you. I, I, every time I hear the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. <laughs> That's hard to understand, right? Have you been with someone who's mourning? I think we rush past these and we're worse off for it. It just think about it. This struggle to understand your circumstances and the way God acts and the way he talks about himself is really probably the most common reason for unbelief in America. All right? I mean, just think about it. How often have you heard a non-Christian say something along these lines? I just can't believe in a God who lets such and such bad thing happen, right? P picking whatever evil they think is the most heinous. Have you heard that before? Have you struggled with that before? Yeah. Well, the Bible allows us as Christians to struggle with this. To recognize that this tension is real. A man by the name of Todd Billings, 
who uh, is an author who, who had cancer and wrote a book on lament, discovering many of these same truths. He put it like this, and I'll, I'll give you a two-sentence quote. Writers of laments and complaints in the Psalms often seek to make their case against God, frequently citing God's promises in order to complain that God seems to be forgetting his promises. They throw the promises of God back at him. I love that phrase. Throwing the promises of God back at him. That is how you complain. Normally, what happens when people suffer? Just think about it, right? And this could be in your life, right? What happens when people suffer? Well, on the one hand, they may get angry at God, right? They may become furious with God. How could you let this happen to me? Visited with a man at our church who does not come back here because of the recession, what the recession did to his business. He won't come back to church. Anger can lead to bitterness. Bitterness can lead to rage. You never get over it. Or you get angry at God. Or it could be the other side of that. You could, you could live in denial. right? You could suppress it in all sorts of ways, whether you're numbing yourself with games or vacation planning or what, whatever you're, I don't know, crocheting, whatever, you're, whatever your numbing sort of device is. You could just live in denial. You could pretend that everything is fine. But that doesn't work in a relationship, right? It's a form of dishonesty. Just think about it. You can't, those of you who are married, you, you probably understand this. You cannot have a meaningful relationship pretending that everything is fine when it's not, right? Guys, have you tried to do this? Does not work, right? It doesn't work with the Lord. Biblical lament offers a better way than anger and ignoring. It offers a way to honestly process our sorrow, not to dwell in it and stay there forever, even if our questions aren't answered. It offers a better way. Godly complaining allows us to express our disappointment and then move on to a resolution. Not solving the circumstance, but solving the heart problem between you and God. So, so what, what do I mean when I say godly complaining, right? That's a strange phrase. Well, um, godly complaining, let's, let's, say, let's call it this. It is honestly telling God why your situation doesn't seem to fit with his character. Complaining, godly complaining, is honestly, that is such a key word, honestly telling God why your situation does not seem to fit with his character. The examples are numerous here, right? Again, verse 1. Why does your anger smoke against us? I thought you said, verse 1, that we were the sheep of your pasture. Like, that doesn't fit, right? We've, we've been hearing Psalm 23 on Sundays. We've talked about the pattern of shepherd. It doesn't make, the shepherd doesn't smoke with anger towards the sheep. That doesn't make sense. Where is that in Psalm 23, right? That doesn't fit with your character, God. Or verses 2 and 3. You've purchased us. You've redeemed us out of Egypt. You once dwelt, um, like literally dwelt among us. So why did you let the sanctuary be destroyed? That doesn't make sense. You redeemed us out of Egypt. Remember why? To worship. Like that was the whole point. 
And then they built this big temple. Why? To worship. Like, that was the whole point. You know it's destroyed now, right, God? Come and see it. Look at that phrase. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. You can almost hear the cynical pain of God's people. Friends, I think this is a good place to remind you. God can handle your feelings. I'm not saying to say and think and feel anything you want towards God. What I'm saying is, if you're already thinking it and feeling it, the best person to tell it to is God. All the time. Remember Jonah? Where do you hide from God? Right? Jonah, Jonah learned. We learned with Jonah. He's not shaken by your honest expressions of grief. It's allowed. It's invited. Just think of our Lord on the cross. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? That's a complaint. That's a lament. And it's not sin. It seems like you've forsaken me, but I'm your son. This doesn't make sense. How does that make sense? My grief is overwhelming me, our Lord expressed. It was honest. Godly complaining is honestly telling God why your situation doesn't seem to make sense with his character. Doesn't mean you're right. Usually, we're not right. But that doesn't mean we stick our head in the sand, right? Let's just get it on the table. Let me, let me keep going, right? I get excited. Um, I suppose I'm already talking about how we're doing this, but let's, let's think about how is it that we should complain? Like, what, is this, what does this look like? How should we come before the Lord in our expressions of sorrow, How do we transfer? How do we cast anxieties on him? Well, first of all, you can and should bring your questions to the Lord. That word questions is the key thing here. This psalm has loads of questions, right? We've already seen some. Verse 1, there's more in verse 10, verse 11. How long, O Lord? Why? Why do you hold your hand back? And the Bible is full of these questions. The psalms are full of questions to the Lord. Psalm 10, verse 1. Just listen. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? When I read that verse and I think about the greatest pain I've ever experienced in my life, that verse captures it. Some circumstance in my life and the way I responded, I felt like God wasn't there. You can tell God about that. He's encouraging you to. What about Psalm 22 that Jesus quoted? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you far away from the words of my groaning? Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like God is ignoring you? Like he's hiding from you? Like he doesn't like you? Like he's refusing you? That's pain. Do you talk to God about that? Do you tell him about it? The struggle? This doesn't make sense to me, God. Do you ask him? Another example, Psalm 44. Listen to how bold this is. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Have you ever told God to wake up? Guys, I'm not quite ready to pray Psalm 44, 23 yet, you know? These are all why questions. 
The Bible has lots of how questions too. One is in verse 10, how long, O Lord? But you can also hear the agony in a verse like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Isn't that one of the greatest cries that we have in our sorrows? How long is this going to last? How long? How long must I suffer? When will I know happiness again? Friends, do you realize that we are invited to ask these sorts of questions? And I would suggest that when we fail to, we're, we're not honoring God and we're not obeying Him. One of my favorite how questions comes in Psalm 137 verse 4. The psalmist says, How shall we sing the Lord's song when we're in a foreign land? Right? So for me, often my greatest, my greatest experiences of suffering in my life have come in some variety of, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to survive. I don't know how my faith is going to make it through. I don't know. I don't think I can be faithful in this. This is just too hard. What you're calling me to do is just too hard. I, I, I don't like this. I don't want to do it. How in the world is this going to work? The psalmist praised that. I, th- I think for me, a big part of the suffering that I have faced is not that I don't want to be faithful, but I don't know how to be faithful. How can I be faithful in my grief? How? Is this just going to paralyze me? Am I going to be useless? How can I do this? Have you ever had a circumstance so intense you become anxious about your faith? Or you simply just don't know what would please God? Have you ever had that kind of suffering? I I have. Or the worst part, I just don't know what to do. Like, I, I want to be faithful. I just literally, I have no idea what to do. I don't even know what faithfulness would look like. That's scary. Apparently, we can ask those questions as well. You see, God can handle our questions. And he can also handle our frustrations. So that would be a second way to, bring, to, uh, to complain. Bring your frustrations. Bring your questions and also bring your frustrations. Tell God what you are frustrated about and tell him why you're frustrated. Have you ever had anybody tell you to do that? Right? That can be hard. That can be tricky. Try to practice this. You'll see how, you'll see how hard it is real fast, right? Verse 3, the psalmist is frustrated because it seems like God isn't even seeing what's happening. He's fr- there's plenty of ways frustration appears in the psalm. One of the ways that we can express frustration is by humbly admitting it to the Lord. Something like this. Lord, if you want to know what you're frustrated about, think about it like this. Lord, if it were up to me, I would do this differently. Okay, can we just be honest for a minute? How many things in your life right now would you like to, do, would you like to change? Is that not that same attitude? If it was up to me, I would do this differently. That's a frustration, right? Well, tell the Lord about it. Don't wallow in unbelief in the secret. Tell him. Admit that to the Lord. And remember what we said last week about prayer? Was it Psalm 64? said prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. So friends, if it's in your heart, even if it's sinful, I want to encourage you to express it to God. Let me say that again. If it's in your heart, even if it's sinful, express it to God. He already knows it's there, 
right? Get it out on the table. Here's an example. If you're struggling in your circumstance to believe in the goodness of God, if you're struggling to believe in the goodness of God as you're watching a relationship crumble, or as you are experiencing a significant loss, tell him about it. Don't you think he wants you to tell him about it? Don't you think he wants you to speak to him? Is it sinful to doubt the goodness of God? Yes. Is it sinful to not talk to him? Yes. Tell him. Confess it to him. Don't pretend like he's not there. You see, even though our psalmist is praying his frustrations, he's not allowing them to dominate him. He's submitting them to God. And that is one of the most critical pieces of lament. And we'll see that primarily in Lamentations, Lord willing. He's submitting them to God because he's praying them. I think it would be very hard to honestly pray to the Lord without submitting to him. Right? If you're honestly praying, if you're getting it out there, prayer is it's always a chance to redirect your heart. So pray your frustrations. The sin's already in your heart. Might as well tell it to the Lord. Confess. So even though we are so good at complaining, I found this is a very hard step. It's very easy. If you're going to pray your complaints, your questions, your frustrations, you have to submit them to the Lord. I found that for me, the reason I struggle with this is because I don't want to. There's something about the flesh that wants to wallow in the selfishness of grief and sorrow. And we need to submit them to Him and trust Him. You see, we have to acknowledge that they're there. We have to admit it. And in my observation, I, I, I sense that many Christians are not only spiritually unhealthy, but we're also very emotionally unhealthy. And that's because we refuse to take the time to examine what's going on in our hearts. We're scared of what we might find, much less poured out to the Lord. But think, think about some of the New Testament promises on prayer. How in the world are you supposed to cast your anxieties on the Lord if you won't admit you're anxious? How, how would that work? How can you like categorically, generally admit an anxiety and then cast all of them specifically on him? We need to be specific. How can you know the peace of God if you don't obey, obey the command of Philippians 4 in everything by prayer, submit your request to God. In everything. If you don't consider how you're anxious or what your requests are and what exactly you're anxious about, you will not find much peace in my line of thinking. You've got to get your toxic thoughts. You've got to get your negative emotions out on the table and submit them to the Lord. Lord, sift through them. This is what I got. This is who I am. Let's fix this. You have to acknowledge them before he can deal with them. If you keep them hidden, they will just continue to do their damage. I had a medical illustration here, which is too graphic. But you can imagine if you just ignore a medical problem, is the medical problem not there? Right? Have, you, have you talked with people like this? Maybe you have a father like this. If I pretend that this thing is not a problem, it's not a problem until it's a problem, right? And that's how our negative emotions are. Think about how David described the suffering that he faced because of his sin. 
which included fear and anxiety. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. But then when I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you when you can be found. There's so much to say here. I'm going to keep moving. Because I want you to think about several things you need to keep in mind as you complain, as you pour your heart out to the Lord. As I've said, this is not an excuse to sin against God. When I tell you to pray your sins and doubts and fears, I'm not encouraging you to commit sin, but rather to confess the sin that you've already committed or the temptation you're facing or the struggle that you're in. So how can we complain about sinning? Here's four quick ways. Number one, complain with humility. Be humble. You can ask God painful questions that are humble. Or you can ask God painful questions that are accusing. You know what I mean? Don't accuse. So when we come to the Lord in our pain, we have to remember, I'm hurting, but he is still the Lord. And I'm not. This is a movement that yet again we see in this psalm. After the psalmist asks his questions, after he makes his complaints, he says in verse 12, look at this beautiful verse. Yet God, my king, is from old. Yet God, my king, is from old. That old, that is, that is speaking to the wisdom and the eternality, the preexistence of God. He is smarter than me. And in the middle of my grief, I need to know that and admit that. I, this is the heart of humility, right? I may not see, I may not understand, I may not feel like, like God cares, I may not feel like he's acting, I definitely think I would do it different, but God is king from on old. I'm not. This is the turn of faith that is so critical in learning how to lament. And it's where all true, true lament ends, in faith. But God is king. Humility also means that we're submitting all the desires of our heart to the Lord to purify him. I, I, want, I can't go into this tonight. It's, it's worth exploring. But just, just think about it like this, right? The things that you complain about are the things you care about. And just because you care about it doesn't mean that you're caring rightly. We as humans are very good at loving the wrong things. And we often love good things in the wrong way. And so often our griefs and our sorrows and our sadness are designed by God to purify us of those very things. You don't pretend like they're not there. You need to process them before the Lord. Grief is so purifying in that way. Secondly, we need to pray the Bible. Remember how we said that complaining is throwing the promises of God back at him? Well, if you're going to find the promises of God, where will you find them? In the Bible, right? Be sure that you're actually praying the promises. Verse 20, the psalmist does this. He prays that God would have regard for the covenant. That's literally, I mean, think about that. Who made the covenant? God, right? So he's saying, hey, remember your words. Remember the covenant you made with us, your people. I think we could say God has a real soft spot for his words, right? So if you're going to pray them, pray his words. Not because they're magic, they're not, but because they're true. 
And that's better. Thirdly, be honest. We've already said this, but just remember the principle that we're working on is you can't hide from God. You can't fake piety. God does not like fake Christians, right? You've heard of the Pharisees. Remember Jesus and his interactions? God was not, Jesus did not like fake spirituality. So don't fake it in the prayer closet, right? Just admit who you are and what you're struggling with. You don't have to pretend like you're not struggling. Like that doesn't work. Just tell them the truth. Uh, Vorgop says, he says, biblical complaint doesn't work if you're not being honest with God about your pain. I think that's really true. I've learned that when I'm hurting and my prayers feel empty and hollow, almost every time it's because I'm not being honest with God. So be honest. Finally, we'll, we'll, end, we'll move towards an ending with this. Don't end with complaining. I'm sorry, I'm a minute over. Um, don't end with complaining. And that goes back to the question, when should we complain? Well, I think we can offer humble, godly complaints to the Lord anytime we're hurting with one major condition. We can't dwell there. We can't end there. That's not the end. Complaining isn't the goal. It's part of the process. You, maybe you can do it 100 times a day, but it's still not the end. The end of lament is not complaining. That would be miserable. The end is faith. So when you're pouring out your complaints to the Lord, pray as long as you need to, but keep moving. Because God is bigger than your problems. Let him, not your circumstances, be the last word. End by dwelling on his character and his promises. If you're complaining about how your circumstances don't seem to fit with the goodness of God, what part of God's character do you think you need to focus on? The goodness of God. I think Philippians 4 reminds us of how to apply this wonderfully. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just and pure, he says, think on these things. If I could commend to you, friends, what is more true and honorable and pure and worthy of praise than God himself? And who is more lovely than Christ? So friends, we must take great care not to complain like we're orphans. Because we're not. We have a father who has adopted us and we have a brother who has redeemed us. And so the gospel, not our circumstances, must have the last word. And is there a better word than the gospel of Jesus Christ? So let me end with a gospel word that I read this morning. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Why? Because God's with us. Father, thank you that you're with us. Help us to remember that even in the pain, even in the fire, you are with us. Give us this confidence as we go. In your name, amen.